Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you have placed us all here. God, we thank you that you've brought us to the end of a semester, that God, you have placed us uh, in this time right now where maybe our, our semester's wrapping up. Maybe, God, we still have just a couple more finals. God, maybe we're still holding out hope for that one more test to not make our parents angry. God, we just ask that no matter where we're at right now, that God, you would pull us away from that, that God, you would shut out those distractions, that God, you would cleanse our mind and our hearts from those thoughts and those worries and those concerns, and that God, instead, you would allow us to just take a little bit of time to think about you, God, to listen to you. God, I ask that you would speak to our hearts today, that God, this would be a time of of peace and calm, of restoration, God, of a moment where we prepare for a break that is fast approaching. Lord, I pray especially that you would just destroy anything that I'm bringing, that God, you would kill the man that I am, that Lord, this morning would be entirely for and about you. God, we ask that the same words that Paul prayed in 1 Corinthians, that you would use this foolish preaching, God, to save those who believe, to spread your gospel. Lord, let us hear the good news of Jesus Christ. God, let us rejoice in that this morning. We pray this all according to your will. Amen. Can you play that first slide? It's a video, so this will be good. You know, a lot of times, most successful relationships, uh, people meet through work, school, mutual friends. But what's most interesting to me is when people just meet in life, just randomly. You know, I have a friend who got married. I asked him, I was like, hey, uh, where'd you meet your wife? He was like, I was leaving Bed Bath & Beyond. I was looking for my car. I drive a gray Prius. I saw a different gray Prius. I thought it was mine. I walked up to it. I realized I had the wrong car, but I bumped into Carol. We started talking. That was that. That's unbelievable. Think about all the random factors that had to come together to make this one moment possible, this one moment that changed these two people's entire lives. First off, this guy has to live in this particular town. Then he has to get a gray Prius. Then he has to need to go to Bed Bath & Beyond. Then... He has to go to that particular Bed Bath & Beyond. Then there has to be another guy that also lives in town, that also has a great Prius, that also needs to go to Bed Bath & Beyond, that also goes to that particular Bed Bath & Beyond at around the same time. Then they have to both park somewhat near each other. My friend has to leave before the other guy leaves, see the wrong Prius, think it's his, walk up to it. Then the woman, Carol, needs to be near the wrong great Prius for a million other random reasons. They bump into each other. They start talking. Their entire lives are changed. That's the most amazing and terrifying thing about life. It is because... The amazing thing is at any moment, any one of us could have that moment that totally changed our lives. You could be leaving the show tonight, bumping into someone. It could change your life. You don't know. That could happen. The terrifying thing is, what if we're all supposed to be at Bed Bath & Beyond right now? So true. So true. Because our lives are so insane. Our lives are so crazy and we have so many different things going on. Maybe you are even here at Texas A&M University for a bajillion insane little details, insane little things that happened in your life that brought you to this place. The reality is that the things that we do, the way that we live, the way that we are, is shaped by so many little pieces flying around. That in reality, every great story, in order for it to really be great, it means we have to really appreciate those details. We really have to appreciate the context in which that story takes place. We have to appreciate all these little factors that add up to that whole. And the reality is that a lot of times we reach this time of our year 
We reach this Christmas season. And man, we read the Christmas story. We hear those verses from Luke 2 that Whitney just read. We hear these things and we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, we love it. And we're like, yeah, praise Jesus. Like, put that manger back in the courthouse. You, you know, whatever. Like, and we get like fired up and we want to put the Christ back in Christmas. But the reality is that a lot of times we miss on a lot of details. The reality is that a lot of times we miss out on a lot of the context. Because it requires extra attention, it requires extra effort. And the reality is that right now we are tired, we are exhausted, and I totally understand. I am there with you. We are tired. And so this morning, my goal is to actually do something really, really different from what we normally do. So normally, you know, we come in here, we listen to some Bible, and we, you know, figure it out and unpack it, all that great stuff. And we're going to, you know, that's still a, a component. But what I really want you to do this morning is to just kind of, relax, okay? Because I know we're tired. I know we got finals. I know that maybe you just watched a bunch of marathon runners and you're like, gosh, that makes me tired. You know, like <laughs> you've seen this thing unfolding. The weather's crazy. There's the icepocalypse up in Dallas and you've been worried about your friend all weekend. And you, there's all, you know, I know there's a lot of stuff going on. You got those finals. So just relax, okay? This morning, let's just, let's just chill out. And I just want you to kind of let me tell you, fill you in on some of the details, some of the context to an incredibly crucial part of our Christmas story. I was a history major at Texas A&M. And so I love historical uh, events and people and things. And I I love uh, whenever you find a person who is really important. It's it's so fun to go in and find out all these things about their life. See what made them into that person. How did they do what they did to change the world? And so this morning, what I want you to do is sit back. Just kind of relax. And let me fill you in on this guy, Caesar Augustus. Because a lot of times we start Luke 2, right? Because we always read the Luke 2 one because the Luke one is the happy Christmas story. And so we read Luke 2 and we say, oh my gosh, in those days the decree went out from Caesar Augustus, blah, blah, blah. And we just keep going and we don't stop and ask ourselves, okay, well, who is Caesar Augustus? Who was that? What did he do? Where did he come from? Because the reality is that in ancient times, the ancient audience that Luke is writing to, they knew who Caesar Augustus is. The reality is that if any of you were history majors like me, you know who Caesar Augustus is. Because he is undoubtedly one of the most powerful, influential men that have ever existed on our planet. Anyone will tell you that. Any historian will attest to that fact. So when we read his name in our scripture, in our holy word, there's a reason that he's there. There's a reason we need to stop and think, okay, well, then what did he really do? Like, what what do we know about Caesar Augustus? Because what we know about him incredibly, it just shapes our Christmas story. The, The truth is that Caesar Augustus is actually one of only two people in the entire Bible who we can actually accurately picture in our minds. He's one of only two people because his face was all over coins. Okay, this was a very common uh, coin back then in ancient Rome. Uh, So his face is on all the coins where you see like his hair and his ear. We're like, well, that's pretty cool. But more than that, we even have statues of him. So it's like full 3D. You can go up and pinch his cheeks, but it's marble, so that doesn't work. But you know, we we have these awesome statues and he had like really creepy eyes apparently, right? Like no soul. I don't know. Probably not really. But they, we look at these things and we see what Caesar looked like. We know what Caesar Augustus looks like. He was an incredibly powerful, influential man. So there's also a lot of time and attention paid to his history. 
his background. There are records detailing him and talking about his life. What we find when we look in ancient texts that we find that this guy, Caesar Augustus, he actually is not named Caesar Augustus. His name was Octavian. Octavian. And Octavian grew up as a really clever kid. He was like smart, just like sharp as a tack, right? Or whatever they had back then. Sharp as a stick or something. And he was just, everyone looked at him, they were like, wow, that kid, he's kind of trouble, right? There's a famous quote that someone said about him when he was a kid, when he was growing up. Uh, They described him as a child with, quote, soft hands and a keen mind, okay? Soft hands meaning, I guess, moisturized a lot. I don't know. But uh, it just means that he's a soft kind of guy. Okay, so he didn't do a lot of physical things, right? He wasn't like out pushing the plow or like fighting people. Instead, he used his mind. He used that keen mind. And he used it so much that, in fact, there's another famous quote about him as a young man that says this guy was visiting his family, described Octavian. He said, he was a talented young man who should be praised, honored, and eliminated. (laughs) No, I don't know if anyone said that about you. If they have, you should tell someone, right? Someone else. But the reality is that people saw Octavian and they said, wow, this kid, like he's, he's doing something, right? Like he is sharp, he's manipulative. And they saw something in him that wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, good. They saw ambition. They saw this just this unquenchable desire for, for people to do his bidding. And so he said, you know, he's great and he does amazing things, but my gosh, he should be eliminated right now, because people knew he was trouble, which is impressive because he grew up in a very troubling time. Right? There were a lot of other issues going on in the Roman Empire. When he was growing up, the Roman Empire was in a civil war, basically. And it wasn't like the American Civil War where it's like one side versus the other. The Roman Civil War was like a million different factions all fighting each other at the same time. All these different people like trying to uh, claim power, all these people trying to expand their borders and set up, well, this is my land and this is your land. And, and there's just fighting, uh, political fighting, and also like actual physical, like killing people fighting. And it's just going on for years. And, and the problem is that as this was going on in the Roman Empire, the empire as a whole was suffering greatly. Because anytime you can't get along with each other, I mean, you're not, your nation as a whole is not going to expand or improve. There's no time to like push through great reforms and civil action when you're worried about like a fighting, you know, physical fighting in your backyard. And so the empire was very fractured on the verge of really breaking up during his entire growth, right? During his kind of rise as a young man. And while he was growing up, there was another guy that you've definitely heard of, a guy named Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar, he rose to power. Okay, he was a distant relative of Octavian, but Julius Caesar rose to power and set himself up uh, as the leader of the Senate, okay, the leader of the Senate of Rome. And so he, uh, technically Rome was still democracy when Julius Caesar was in power, uh, but he was almost like just a little bit of a dictator, okay, if that's possible. He's just, just a little tyrant, okay, just like a little bit, like not, not full-fledged, like I don't, I don't know what a full-fledged dictator looks like. But he wasn't full-fledged dictator. He was partial, partial dictator, okay? So partial dictator Julius Caesar grew up, pulled a lot of stuff together. He made a lot of improvements, kind of got people to quiet down a little bit. But as many of you probably know, Julius Caesar had some people around him that didn't really like him, and so he got super assassinated uh, one day when all these, like, guys came in and just, like, stabbed him to death, right? And that's where that famous quote, uh, the et tu, Brute, because his friend, you know, Brutus, stabbed him as well. And so he gets assassinated. Julius Caesar is no more. Suddenly, you have this vacuum opened up 
in that top spot, right? So the leader of the Senate, even though he wasn't a full-fledged dictator, he had a lot of power. And so suddenly there's no one in that position. There's no one in that super powerful position that Julius Caesar honestly created himself. So who's going to step in? Who's going to rise up and take that slot from Julius? Who's going to take that new position as leader of the Senate? And there were basically two front runners. Okay, two main guys kind of rose up and said, I'm going to do it. Uh, there was a third guy, technically, uh, but he was basically like the Ralph Nader Green Party of the day. So no one really cared about him. And so there's two main ones, okay? Two main guys. One of them was a guy named Mark Antony, who you maybe have heard of. Uh, he's in, you know, ancient plays and stuff like that. Mark Antony, and he was really the prime candidate. Okay, Mark Antony was the, he was the, uh, just like the ladies' man. He was very popular uh, with the women of Rome. He was just good looking, right? Like just a great looking, strapping, strapping fellow. Uh, he was really, really popular with the men because Mark Antony was a soldier at heart. And so he like had all these battles he had fought in. He had all these like medals and awards. And he was just a man's man. He was a ladies' man and a man's man, right? He could chop down trees and write you a poem or something at the same time, right? Like he was just amazing. And not only that, but he was an incredibly gifted speaker. Like he would get up and just perform these speeches that would just blow people away. He had a powerful voice. People could hear him from way, way, way off. And they all loved him. He would just work them up into frenzies and talk about how great the Roman Empire was. And everyone was like, yeah, you're right. We are great. And so they would like rally around him. They're like, yeah, Mark Antony. Like he was basically, if they had, you know, like Roman football, he would be great at it, right? Like that's the kind of guy that Mark Antony was. And he was the prime dude. Like if you were placing bets on the power position, you'd bet on Mark Antony. But the second guy was good old Octavian, right? Mr. Soft Hands. That's the second guy. And so people looked at that and they were like, well, that's kind of weird that he's trying to make a claim, right? Because he's, he's kind of soft, right? He, I mean, soft hands, like what? He's uh, sneaky, Right? People, people didn't generally like, like him. They respected him, but they didn't really like him. Uh, he, wasn't good. he didn't fight in any battles. He didn't give like, really great speeches. He didn't do anything up front like that that just blew people away. He probably was like, really good at like, Settlers of Catan, but that was about it. You know, like, that's kinda, he just kind of stayed in his little world, and people didn't really know what he was all about. And they knew he was smart, right? They knew he was cunning, uh, but they didn't really love him the way that they loved Mark Antony. So in that moment, okay, in this time when everyone's like, okay, so who's going to take over? They're like, Mark Antony, faux show. But, probably didn't say faux show. But the reality, what actually happened is it took about 17 years. Okay, this wasn't like a, you know, two-year running for the polls thing. 17 years of violence and intrigue and deception and manipulation. And through all of these years and all these days and all these strings being pulled by Octavian, eventually it resulted in Mark Antony being trapped, surrounded by a Roman army that had been turned against him. He was trapped in Egypt and he committed suicide, dying in the hands of his lover, Cleopatra. Suddenly, Mark Antony is no more. He was disgraced. Octavian had pulled all these strings, manipulated all these different people, turned the national public love against Mark, got him to kill himself, drove him to suicide. And now Octavian sets himself up as leader of Rome. 
Not only does he set himself up as leader, he takes that dictatorship, that kind of partial tyrant, partial dictator position, makes it full-fledged, okay? Now, uh, Octavian has set himself up as the full-on, first, completely legit emperor of Rome. Even though that title had existed, he really filled it. He was the end-all, be-all of the Roman Empire because he had manipulated people, gotten people around him to where he had acquired all of the power and What's amazing is that he didn't use that power. He didn't abuse it to like knock people down or like terrorize his people. He used his absolute power to bring in peace. He ended war in the Roman Empire. He created a peace that lasted for 200 years. 200 years of peace. He set the empire up and pushed out its boards. He set it up to where it would last another 400 years beyond himself. 400 years. America has not existed that long. The world as you know it has not existed for nearly that long. 400 years ago was like the 1600s. 400 years when people were right on the verge of saying, yeah, Roman Empire, it's almost done, right? Civil War. No. Octavian, Caesar Augustus, steps up, sets them all up. He's an amazing, incredibly powerful, incredibly influential man. And he knew it. I mean, he knew it. When he was in charge of the Senate, uh, it got to around to calling him, they gave him this title called the Divinity of the Senate. That's what they called him. They worshipped him, literally worshipped him, because he was so amazing, because he did all these amazing things. And so they said, you are the Divinity of the Senate. He called himself, uh, and I've been messing this up all week, Divophilius. Oh, I got it. Divophilius. He called himself, I am the Divophilius, meaning literally, I am the Son of of God. That's what he called himself. That was his self-proclaimed title. Divophilia, son of God, is what Caesar Augustus called himself. In fact, this would eventually kind of warp and change as people began to love him more and more and more as they realized that soft-hand guy was actually really, really awesome and amazing and powerful and smart and cunning. They began to call him the king of kings and the lord of lords. First person to ever be called that. That's where that term originates from. King of kings Lord of Lords, Caesar Augustus, which is probably somewhat confusing because you remember singing that like in a worship song, Lord of Lords, bright morning star, right? Like, but no, like it started with Caesar Augustus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, divinity of the Senate, self-proclaimed son of God. And he earned it. He earned it. He stopped war. And that's amazing in and of itself. But not only did he stop the war, but he expanded their borders. The Roman Empire, under his rule, expanded, uh, just thinking about it mentally in terms of our world now, you could start in England, okay? And you could travel all the way to the Middle East. You could go from England to Egypt without ever leaving the Roman Empire, without ever crossing a border. England to Egypt. He created Rome, right? The capital of Rome. We often fail to realize how amazing that city truly was, right? You're thinking, this is, you know, 2,000 something years ago. Rome was amazing. It had paved streets. It had sewers. It had running water. It had a fire department. It had uh, coliseums like the Circus Maximus, which held 120,000 people all in this one city, all in Rome. It was the city that everyone looked at and they lo- it was just every other city tried to copy Rome. Okay, basically, if you went back in that time, every city wanted to be Rome. 
And Caesar ruled Rome. That's where he was. That's where he lived. That was his pet project. He created this amazing thing. And in fact, he, uh, there's this famous quote from him, his last big public speech to his people before he died. He said, I found Rome a city of bricks, and I leave it a city of marble. Meaning he brought so many improvements. He created this amazing kingdom for himself. He created roads, right? There's that old expression, like every road leads to Rome. Because Caesar Augustus set up so many dang roads. It was insane, right? So many roads. And these roads would go out of Rome. They'd go in between these other cities. They'd go all over the entire empire. He set up these roads because it would allow quick travel. It allowed quick communication. It allowed him to exert his power over his entire realm, his entire empire, because there were roads, something that people didn't have up until that point, but it was so much easier to get from place to place. He set up a universal currency, right? That thing with his face on it. Everyone used that. Everyone. He set up this currency that everyone would use because it allowed economic domination. Even if you weren't even in the Roman Empire, you were using that coinage because it was so powerful. Everyone used the coin with his face on it, traveling on the roads that he built, speaking the language that he said to speak. He set up a dual language system where everyone, no matter where you were, you would always have at least one language in common. This allowed business, uh, communications, education to all happen much more uh, quickly, much more fluidly, much more efficiently. He set up an incredible system, an incredible empire. That's why it lasted for 400 years. Because he had done amazing, amazing things. This powerful, amazing man created a powerful, amazing empire that had never been seen before. Honestly, has never been seen since. And when we see that, when historians look at this, they think, okay, well, how? <laughs> right? When they see all these things that he did, they, they ask themselves, how did he do this? Like, how did he go about this plan? Like, how did he enact his will on so many different people? And Luke gives us a clue. Luke, the gospel of Luke, uh, the writer of Luke, Luke, he was a historian. He wrote the gospel of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts in the goal of creating a good history that people could look at and kind of see how did things work. He gives a lot of historical details that historians care about. And so in the beginning of Luke, he tells us this fact. He gives us a hint about Caesar. He says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. You see, Caesar understood that there was a very key recipe. There was a very key component to having a lasting empire, and that's having cash and troops. Okay, that's what you need. So if you were planning on starting an empire over the break, cash and troops, okay, that's what you need. If you have cash and troops, you can basically make people do whatever you want. And Caesar Augustus knew in order to get that cash, in order to raise those troops, he has to know exactly how many people are in his empire. He knew that he couldn't tax those people too much or they would rebel. He couldn't tax them too little or else they wouldn't be oppressed enough that he could keep them down. He wouldn't have enough money to give to his army, which was at that time about 500,000 men, which is insane for that time. So he needed to know exactly how many people lived in his empire so that he could keep them happy and oppressed. And this is how he did it. He used this registration process. He used this thing where he made all these people go around. And imagine how chaotic that must be. Luke tells us that all, 
He doesn't say, you know, he tried to have this registration, but people were like, meh. No, he says, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Luke tells us every single person in this empire said, well, okay, Caesar says so, so I got to go. So they all pack up. Imagine how incredibly chaotic that must have been. All these people packing up their stuff, deciding, okay, I've got to go, you know, to this town. I was born there or whatever. My husband was born there, so we've got to go there. All the way from England to Egypt, all of these people, millions of people, all having to pack up and move all at the exact same time. They had like a year window to do it. it insane. So chaotic. Because not only was Caesar in, you know, trying to raise that money, not only was he trying to demoralize the people, it wasn't just about that cash. There was also a mental game that he was playing. Caesar knew that this was going to get crazy. He knew it would be so chaotic. He knew that people would get frustrated and their suitcases would fall apart and their donkey would run away or whatever. And he knew this would happen. And he knew it and he wanted that to happen because he realized that he's got to keep those people demoralized. He needs those people to remember that they are a conquered people. Because the Roman Empire wasn't a bunch of Romans. The Roman Empire was Israelites and these people and those people. Like, there's people from all these different nations, all these different places. And he wanted to keep them conquered. He wanted to keep them demoralized. So he says, when I say jump, you ask me how high. You go and do that. Because what I say is law. Because I'm the son of God. I'm the divinity of the Senate. I'm the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Whatever I say happens. I'm the most powerful man on the planet. Our favorite word this whole semester, Puba, Caesar would call himself that. He says, I'm the Puba. I'm the Lord most high of all things. He knew what he was doing. He was a brilliant man. And he knew he had absolute control and he wanted everyone else to know it. And it's honestly logical for historians, for us to read this, see this happen. We're like, wow, that was amazing. What an amazing man. This is, we need to you know, lift him up high. We should still put him on our coins. You know, whatever. Like we should still just be amazed at this man. But what we see in Luke what we see in this historical document is so amazing that he puts a spin on the entire events, on this entire thing, this entire registration, on this entire legacy of Caesar Augustus. Luke puts a spin on it. That's amazing. He goes on, says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. We zoom in in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of all these people trying to go there and there and do all this pack up, and we zoom in and we see Joseph. We see Mary. And we see that she's pregnant. You're like, what? Right, but we see these people and we realize, okay, Luke's audience realized this is the mother of God. This is the father. You know, was married. Like, they know what's up. They know who Joseph and Mary were. They weren't just like, whoa, what's going to happen with these guys? Right? Like, they knew what was going on. And what Luke is saying in this moment, he's saying, look. Look at this intersection that's about to happen. Look how God is about to intersect with Caesar Augustus. He says, and while they were there, while they were in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. What Luke is subtly telling us, what he's communicating through this passage is telling us, you know what? Why did this happen? Why did the registration happen? Why did all these things go into place? Was it for Rome? 
Was it for Caesar? Was it so that he could know all, all the people? Was it for the cash and the troops? Was it so that Caesar could feel uh, affirmed and powerful over all these people? Luke says, no, it was for God. So this was all for God. Because his audience knew, we should know, that this happens because of a prophecy in Micah 5. The little book that you've probably never read, Micah. Chapter 5, verse 2, God says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, so little, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. There was a prophecy in the book of Micah by the prophet Micah who said, Bethlehem is the place where a king will rise. Bethlehem is the place where God will send forth a Savior, a Messiah from Bethlehem. So Jesus Christ needed to be born in Bethlehem. Which then you probably think, well, there were probably a lot easier ways for God to get Jesus born in Bethlehem, right? Other than like giant census, right? Like other than like have all these people move. Like Joseph could have just like uh, maybe started there, right? He could have gotten a job or maybe he had an internship in carpentry in Bethlehem. Like there's so many other things, like so many other things could have happened to get Joseph and Mary into Bethlehem to have their son, to have Jesus Christ in Bethlehem to fulfill this one out of literally like hundreds of prophecies about him in the Old Testament. So many other things could have happened. But what Luke is intentionally telling us, the point is, no, God chose this way. God chose to use Caesar Augustus and his giant census. God chose to use the entire Roman Empire. All of the things that have been happening, all these pieces and all these events and all these people and all of these battles and all of this espionage and intrigue, all of these things were leading to this moment so that Joseph and Mary could be in Bethlehem and give birth to Jesus Christ where the Bible said he would be born. All of those things. Because God chose to work that way. Because God can choose to do whatever he wants. Because even though Caesar Augustus set himself up as I am the son of God, I am the divinity of the Senate, God used him. Caesar accidentally served God. Caesar accidentally gave glory to God. This entire Roman world set in motion. Everybody goes back to their hometowns. Not for Caesar. For God. That's so amazing. When we appreciate these details, when we appreciate this context, we have to ask ourselves, then who's really in charge? Right? Who's really over all these different pieces? On his deathbed, Caesar Augustus, one of his most famous quotes, he's dying. He has this inner circle around him. He turns to him, he says, I have played the part. If I have played it well, give me applause. Prideful statement from a powerful man. I've played the part. If I did it well, give me applause. Dying words. So much pride from so much power. And it's true. He played the part. We just went through all of his accolades, right? He played that part. He performed a census the world had never seen before, has never done since. He had this registration. He had this system. 
so that 1,500 miles away, Mary and Joseph would move to the proper city. He brought in such an incredible peace that the world has not known since that allowed a gospel to go out and unify people, allowed the gospel to spread so easily so that it might unify people in ways that no empire ever could, can, or will. He created these borders that were so wide, so just pushed out that early believers were able to move so freely and tell other people the good news of Jesus Christ. He created these roads that allowed average fishermen to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to the furthest reaches of the empire and beyond. He created this unified currency that allowed the early church to support missionaries in ways that would have never been possible. Unified currency that they were able to transfer and give. They didn't have to do exchanging, anything like that. They were able to support missionaries in ways that would not have happened if that unified currency didn't exist. He set up a dual language system that, again, I cannot stress enough, just simplified the spread of the gospel. Just put the easy coat of paint all over the gospel message. It could not have been easier. Because everyone spoke the same language. The communication of the gospel was so easy. He enacted crucifixion that was supposed to terrify his opponents, yet was used to fulfill another prophecy, that Jesus Christ would hang on a tree, die for the sins that we've committed. Caesar played the part, but he didn't write the script. When I see what Caesar has done, when I see his life, when I see what he accomplished, I don't applaud Caesar. I applaud the author. I look at these events and I say, wow, whoever was really in control of that is amazing. When we see our Christmas story, when we read just that first half of a verse, seeing that Caesar Augustus was part of God's plan, that's amazing. Our God, who is the author of all things, is amazing. We look at what Christ did. We look at just eight days after his birth. There's another prophecy. Mary and Joseph, his parents, take him to the temple. They run into this guy named Simeon, who'd been waiting his entire life to see the Messiah. Because God had told him, you're going to see the Messiah before you die. So Simeon would just hang out at the temple, waiting to see him. Mary and Joseph walk in with this eight-day-old baby. Hand him to Simeon. Simeon knows. And he says this, he prophesies over Christ. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, meaning I can die in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon realized exactly what he saw in that baby. He saw salvation for the world. What we see every Christmas story is a Jesus Christ, a, a man who was God, who came and lived on this earth and lived a perfect life, a life that none of us can live. And then he died so that we might only trust him, put our faith in him, make a decision in our minds that we might be saved, that we could have a relationship with God 
that we would have eternal salvation, that nothing we do or say would ever take that away from us. That's amazing. And that's what Simeon saw, and that's what we see every time we read the story. That's what we should see every time we realize that God used Caesar Augustus to get there, that God would use Roman roads and currency and peace in an empire that's never been seen, would not be seen ever again, all to spread the good news about this little kid who was born in Bethlehem. All of that for him. So as we walk into this break, as we maybe read this story with our family on Christmas Eve, right? as we go to that candlelight service and put wax on our little brother, like as we do those things, I would challenge you to keep one, just one question in your mind. Please, one question over this month of break that you have. How will I bring glory to God? How am I going to serve God in my life? How am I going to glorify him? Because the truth is that everyone's going to bring glory to God. Everyone will serve him, right? Even Caesar, even selfish, self-absorbed Octavian, soft-hand dude, even he brought glory to God. He accidentally served the Lord just by existing. So everyone will serve God in some capacity, but as believers, if I'm a child of God, if I've placed my faith in Christ and to become an adopted son or daughter of the Lord Most High, I am called to actively serve him, to aggressively bring him glory. So ask yourself, this break, are you doing that? Is that what your life is about? Is that what your break's going to be about? Are you playing the part of a student or a worker or a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister? Are you playing that part for yourself? Or are you playing that part for God, for the one who wrote your script. Who are you playing that part for? So much more important than the part itself. When I was a freshman at A&M, or right before I was a freshman at A&M, I told the story before, I, was, I went to Impact, loved it. And at Impact, I had this moment where I was sitting uh, on like the second day or something. We were, there was all this worship going on, and I was just sitting, and I felt this weight and this burden in my heart that I never felt before. And I just sat there, and I was praying, and I was asking the Lord, like, what's going on? Like, why do I feel this incredible, like, unease? And I didn't hear a verbal, like, an audible voice or anything. No light shone down on me. But in my thoughts, I felt directed and guided to begin to think about my future. And I started thinking about, what am I doing with my life? Like, where am I headed? Because at that point, I was planning on going through a and I was in the PPA. I was going to go, uh, you know, become a prof, like do all this stuff. That was my plan. That was my goal. But in that moment, as I was thinking about that stuff, I just felt this incredible unease. And my thoughts began to drift towards ministry. My thoughts began to drift towards serving God full time as my occupation. And everything in me fought against that. I did not want this. I did not choose this path in and of myself. But God led me to that point. And you know what? The, the truth is that in that moment, as I was wrestling with those thoughts and those decisions, the big like aha moment wasn't when I said, you know what? Okay, God, I'm going to be a preacher. Right? I'm going I'm to be in full-time vocational ministry. That wasn't it. I kind of reached that point, but I still felt this unease. The truth is that I didn't feel a peace. I didn't feel just God's hand guiding me. I didn't have that moment until I came to the realization that my future was not my own. That ultimately it wasn't about 
playing a part of a pastor or playing a part of a volunteer youth leader or playing the part of a college teaching director. That wasn't what it was all about. It wasn't the part that I was playing. It was who am I playing for? And it wasn't until the moment that I was sitting in that chair at impact and I realized, Lord, I just want to be wherever you want me to be. Lord, I just want to go where you send me. God, I just want to play the part that you would have me play, no matter what it is. That was the moment that I got it. That was the moment that God gave me this supernatural peace. Is the only way I know how to describe it. That was the moment that God changed my heart and my mind, gave me opportunities, has just given me grace, a woman who loves and supports me in that goal, parents, a family, there's all these crazy things that came around once I made that decision, not to go into ministry, but that decision to just do whatever God would have me do. It changed my life. So this break, maybe you're a semester away from graduation, maybe you're a year away, maybe you're three and a half years, 17 years, I don't know, like I don't know what you're doing. Maybe you've got a ways to go, maybe it's really short, but the truth is that we're all gonna get to that point where we begin to make these life-altering decisions. And I would challenge you, those decisions pale in comparison to one that you can make right now, which is who are you playing for? Are you setting up these empires? Are you building these roads and setting up that currency? Are you becoming your own Caesar for yourself? Or are you doing these things to serve the God who created you? Because the truth is that this world is passing away see that again and again and again in Scripture. You can look out at our world and just know it. The apocalypse is upon us, right? This world is passing away. Eventually, God's going to get all the glory. Eventually, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Eventually, we're all going to look at God and say, whoop, yep, you did it. He's going to get it. The question is, during this brief time that you have on earth, are you going to active, actively serve him? Are you going to actively and aggressively glorify him? Are you going to try it, to do it for yourself? Are you just going to waste your time? So as we sing a little bit more worship, I would encourage you to just think about this. Think about it today. Pray about it. Think about it on your drive home. Turn off the radio for a little bit and just pray. When you're sitting at home, going to bed, whatever, you're full of turkey and presence or whatever. Like, just spend some time. Think about this question. Ask yourself this hard question. Who are you playing for? Because we're all at risk of becoming our own little Caesars. But let's not. Please, let's not. So let's pray right now. Lord, we, God, are just grateful that you are so incredible, that you work in so many just different, crazy ways. That, Lord, we can just look at history and marvel at what you've accomplished. God, we thank you that not only are you at work in history, but God, you are at work in our lives right now. So if you would, take a moment right now, ask the Lord, what direction are you headed? Ask the Lord to convict you if you have been trying to hoard this empire in for yourself. Ask the Lord to show you where can you be handing things over to him. Ask the Lord to reveal to you in what ways can you actively glorify him, aggressively serve him this break next semester with the rest of your life. Take a moment of silence. Seek him.